Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Bjorn Lomborg is president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, a think tank dedicated to applying economic analysis, including cost-benefit analysis, which we'll be talking about quite a lot today, to the great issues of the day. He is the author of a number of books, including his 2001 bestseller, The Skeptical Environmentalist, and his most recent book, Prioritizing Development, a Cost-Benefit Analysis of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Bjorn Lomborg, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Uh, let's begin with the issue. You do a, all kinds of interesting work, and we'll come to some of the other work you do, but let's begin with the issue that first brought you to prominence, and to which you still devote a lot of time, climate change. Here we have Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking just a couple of weeks ago. I think that the part of it that is generational is that millennials and people and, you know, Gen Z and all these folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is... Your, your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? And, like, this is the war. This is our World War II. The world will end in 10 years, and this is the millennial generation's World War II, to which Bjorn Lomborg says... Well, it's, first of all, a wonderful encapsulation of how we really talk about global warming. There's a sense the world is going to come to an end very, very soon, and so we've got to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this problem. Now... If that was really true, if the world was ending in 10 years, then of course we should throw everything at this problem. But that's not what the UN Climate Panel is telling us. Actually, the UN Climate Panel tells us global warming is an issue. Overall, in the long run, this will be a significant problem for humanity. So a lot of climate economists have spent a long time. The Nobel uh, uh, Award was just awarded to uh, William Nordhaus, the first climate economist ever to get the uh, Nobel Prize. And he tells us, along with lots of other experts, that global warming by the end of the century will cost in the order of 2 to 4% of global GDP. So that means the uh, sort of experience that you will have will be, on average, that you will be 2 to 4% less rich by the end of the century than you would otherwise be. Not less rich than we are now. No, no, no. Less rich than we otherwise would but, have been, yeah. and the projections are all for increasing level of oh, standards. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, Re so remember, we're talking we'll be 300 to 1,000% richer in 2100, and then we'll be 2 to 4% Less rich. So we might end up being 996% less rich. Actually, of actually, you have to take it a little more, right, because it's the percent of that. But yes, it's a very small percentage of a much, much larger number. And that, of course, is why you need to recognize global warming is a problem, but it's just simply and by no means the end of the world. And now, if it's a problem, so that's what the UN Climate Panel very clearly tells us, it's a problem. If it's a problem, there are many, many problems in the world. And we need to make sure that we fix those problems in a way where we spend less resources to fixing them than the negative impact that they have. Otherwise, we're actually throwing away resources. And, of course, resources we could have spent on doing a lot of other good elsewhere. 
And so my real problem with this sort of proposal uh, that she just told us, uh, we need to you know, spend lots and lots of money. Remember her, her, her new, uh, new Green Deal? We'll uh, to se well. se seems to indicate that we're going to be spending in the order $2.1 trillion a year. This is the uh, Bloomberg estimate. And obviously, this is a very rough estimate. $2.1 trillion to achieve almost nothing in 100 years. That is typically a bad deal. And so my point here is not to say she has her heart in the right place, but I want to make sure that we actually do things, both for climate and all the other problems in the world, that do the most good. And unfortunately, that's not it. So uh, your basic technique here, your basic approach is rational, anal rational economic analysis, cost and benefit. We come to that in a moment, but I'd like to spend just a moment or two first on you, you, you took the UN climate panel as an authority. Okay, so what I want to do is elucidate your thinking on climate change just a little bit before we go to cost-benefit. So on the spectrum of climate change, views of climate change, over here we have AOC, as she's now being called, because a lot of people like me have trouble. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All right, over here, the world is ending. Over here, this is, I found a quotation by the late Michael Crichton. It comes from a 2009 book he wrote, but it's still, the still in my judgment, the most forthright, skeptical statement you can find. This is Michael Crichton. We are in the midst of a natural warming trend that began in about 1850. Nobody knows how much of the present warming trend might be a natural phenomenon, and nobody knows how much of the present warming trend might be man-made. The world is ending, and we're doing it to ourselves, over to nobody really knows anything. And where is Bjorn Lomborg in that spectrum? Well, it's always convenient to say I'm sort of in the middle, right? But I would much rather want to say I am where the UN Climate Panel tells us where we should be. Look, the UN has spent a lot of money and a lot of people's time for, what, 20 years now looking at what is the ups and downs in, in global warming. And you find that and body of work impressive I, I, and generally credible. I, th I think generally credible. Look, okay. there's been some issues and, and clearly uh, they, they don't tell, you know, they, they don't do everything equally well. They've actually decided not to talk about uh, cost-benefit analysis. They did that in their second report and then they basically skipped all of that uh, since then. I obviously think that that's a big issue. But if you look at the natural science, remember I'm not a natural scientist, so right. I'm, I've talked to a lot of these guys. My sense is they tell us pretty much the way it is. There is a problem, it's, it's limited, but it's not trivial. So it is something we should deal with, but it's not the end of the okay, world. Okay, just a couple of the usual climate change claims. Rising sea levels. Yes. You buy that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have very, very good data. Sea levels are rising, and we're likely to see somewhere between one and three foot of sea level rise by the end of the century. By the end of the century, all right. Extreme weather events, hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, wildfires in California. We just had the polar vor vortex descend from the Arctic to Chicago. Uh, yeah. All attributable that, to global warming. That, that is a lot more problematic. So let me just okay. give you a very short version of this. The UN tells us that we don't know about uh, floods. We don't know very much about hurricanes and storms. So if you look out into the future, for instance, for hurricanes, which is by far the biggest and most damaging uh, impact uh, globally, we estimate that there'll probably be slightly fewer hurricanes, but they'll probably be stronger. So overall, you'll probably see somewhat of an increase in the cost of hurricanes. But 
it's important, again, to keep a sense of proportion here. Mm. Uh, right now, hurricanes cost about 0.04% of GDP. By the end of the century, this is a... Who, whose GDP? Is that world so GDP or, that's or global, American? Global, global GDP, right, yes. Right. And uh, a famous study from 2012 in Nature magazine, which is still the best authority on looking at what happens if you include and exclude global warming, they found that by the end of the century, because we're going to be much richer, as we talked about just before, uh, we are going to be much more resilient. And so we'll actually see less damage. That's the simple point of seeing, you know, when a hurricane hits Florida, a lot of stuff gets damaged, but it doesn't kill all that many people. Whereas when a hurricane hits uh, Guatemala, a lot of people right. die and it really impacts their GDP for, for, for years on end. So when we get richer, they estimate instead of 0.04% of GDP as it is today, it'll be about 0.01% of GDP by the end of the century. It'll be somewhat more costly, but because we're going to be much richer, it'll actually be a lower percentage. Okay. But yes. with global warming, because they're estimating that it'll be worse with global warming, we actually expect to see a doubling of that amount. So we'll see damages of 0.02%. So two things are true at the same time. You'll see a decline in actual impacts of hurricanes despite global warming, because it will go from 0.04 to 0.02. But it will be bigger than had there been no global warming, because then it would have been down to 0.01. So the picture, we are not facing a disaster movie. No. The oceans won't freeze over. There was one. <laughs> yes. Whatever. The day was the, after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow. I yes. still can't figure out how global warming caused the entire world to freeze over. But it was a catastrophe, and it happened fast, and, and people it was froze more, in place. More, more fun to, to yes, view okay. than. But with the, so, if, yeah. so to the extent that people are carrying around a mental image, as AOC seems to be doing, that we are headed into a. a a Disney ride, but an unhappy one instead yes. of a happy one, a catastrophe movie, yeah. if that's just wrong. Yes. We've got some, humankind has always been adjusting to the environment. I'm a little colder, so I wear a jacket. You're a little warmer, so you wear a t-shirt. So what we have is adjustments that we can make over the course of many, many years. Yeah. That's the correct way to think of it. Yes, and, and a little bit more because- You will not sell a script to Hollywood. <laughs> not in this way, no, uh, because we are adapted to specific temperature. So uh, Atlanta is fine with pretty hot weather and Boston with pretty cold weather. But both of these places will be slightly uncomfortable if it either got warmer or colder both places because they built the infrastructure to a particular temperature. Right. So it is reasonable to say, although we will adapt, we will have higher costs when temperatures rise. But we need to have a sense of proportion. That's yeah, what I'm trying that's, to say. That's you know, the whole point. The, the right. hurricanes, which is by far the worst uh, outcome of, of uh, extreme weather, is a very small part of global GDP, of everything we do, 0.04% globally. Right. And the reason why we think it's much, much bigger is, of course, because of the CNN effect that there's always a camera crew there to show you how terrible it is for those people who are involved. And it is terrible for them. But you just cannot make your decisions yes. on what you see on CNN and say, oh, that's the entire world. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't show up on CNN because it's boring. Got it. All right. Let us try not to bore people. But this is very strange, Bjorn. I've never had a man who essentially said, 
I'm here to bore you. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm here I, to calm you down. Let's. Uh, well, all right, all right. well I, I, I mean, because obviously we don't make good decisions if we're scared witless. Right. We're likely to make panicky decisions, and indeed that's what we've been doing on global warming for the last 30 years. Right. We have been arguing, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. Of course, remember back, we've had a lot of these predictions. The first uh, uh, head of the, uh, uh, the UN's Environmental Protection Agency, he came out in 82 and basically said if we don't fix global warming, it's going to be, be like a nuclear war in 2000. And no, it wasn't. Right. And we've had lots of those predictions. And the point, the, the reason why they're being made, of course, is to gather all the good and great and get us moving and do something. But the inevitable impact is we feel like we got to do something. And then we do something that feels Stupid. good, that looks good, but doesn't actually have any impact and often is incredibly expensive. All right. Just uh, as we tape this, it would be just a couple of days ago that AOC and Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts rolled out the Green New Deal, which is a non-binding resolution that calls for a number of quite dramatic items to deal with climate change. Let me just mention a couple of the main points and hear how you respond. Here's one. The Green New Deal it contains a promise to convert, quote, not making this up, quote, 100% of the power and the demand in the United States to clean, renewable, and zero energy sources, close quote, within 10 years. Good uh, idea. Is, first of all, it's not doable. And secondly, Madness. E even if no? you could, it'd be phenomenally expensive. Uh, and, and again, I, I think because th this is clearly motivated by a lot of fear. And so uh, going out and say, oh, it's madness. You know, I understand where this comes from, but I think it's important to reel people back and say, look, if you actually want to do something about global warming, let's do proposals that will actually work and that okay, has hold a on. chance. Uh, well, Green New Deal first, and then we come to yes. the proposals that will actually work because that's Bjorn Lomborg's job. A promise to upgrade, quote, all existing buildings, close quote, to meet energy efficiency requirements. Again, I believe the promise is to do that within a decade. Yes, and that's even more impossible. You know, we're talking about 1.3, 1.4 trillion dollars per year. You know, it's half of the U.S. budget, uh, the statutory budget. That's just not going to happen. A promise to expand high-speed rail service so broadly that within a decade most airline travel will be rendered obsolete. Yeah, I can't really see that happening. But, okay. but, but again, uh, even if you did that, that would actually reduce emissions a lot less because, again, air travel is a fairly small amount. Uh, globally, it's about 3.5%. It's probably more in the U.S., and I'm not sure what that number is. But still, you know, it's a fairly small uh, amount. But it's the guilt amount. You know, it feels wrong to fly, and so that's what we're focusing on. Again, I'd like us to focus on the stuff that actually work. All right. So this brings us to what you believe should reasonably be done. You wrote recently of the work of economist William Nordhaus. You mentioned a moment ago that he has now received a Nobel Prize, the, the only climate economist ever to receive a Nobel Prize. Quoting you, Bjorn, quote, his careful work shows that a globally coordinated, moderate and rising carbon tax, carbon tax could reduce temperatures modestly, close quote. So that's something that ought to take place the imposition of a glo modest global carbon tax and then ratchet it up gradually. Yes? So I'm going to complicate this a little further because he's absolutely right. And almost any economist you ask will say the right way to tackle a problem where basically you have a market failure and you know, nobody's paying for emitting CO2, an externality, CO2, an externality right, right, right. then put in a carbon tax. If you can do that, 
And remember, if you can make it globally coordinated across the century with China, India, and everybody else, then you can actually make this work. And you can cut carbon emissions a little bit. In the reality, problem, however... The problem, of course, is that you, you've seen this in the U.S. You know, it basically leads to gridlock for 10 years. Yes. Uh, in many other countries, you can't do it. If you start doing it, uh, as soon as it starts ramping up a little bit, you, know, you get the yellow vests on, on the street and nobody can do anything. In many developing countries, a realistic carbon tax would be so expensive that it would be more than the entire intake, government intake. And, of course, that won't be possible either. So there's a lot of practical problems. So it's a neat theoretical point. And I think, in principle, we should try and do it because it probably is effective even if only some countries do it as soon as you don't do stupid stuff like then trying to impose carbon controls at the border, which a lot of people misuse to basically break down free trade. But the much, much better approach to this is to focus on technology. And if you'll allow me a sort of diversion, if you think back in the 1860s, mm -hmm. The world was hunting whales to extinction. Why? Because whales has this wonderful oil that burns really brightly and really cleanly. So it lit up most of the U.S. and, and the uh, West European homes. And our current approach to tackling global warming back then would have been a little bit like, could you please turn down that light? Could you have it a little more dim? Could you have used the old annoying uh, 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 sooting uh, oil instead? And of course, you would have had no success. What did happen was somebody drilled for oil in Pennsylvania and discovered, oh, wait, there's a much cheaper, even more effective th way that we don't have to go out and hunt whales, and we can burn out our homes. It's cheaper and it's even brighter. Let's do that. That technological development basically meant we saved the whales. And we've seen that a number of times through human history. If you get a technological solution, everyone switch. If you don't get a technological uh, solution, it almost never happens. So, you know, back when, when we thought everybody was going to starve to death because we couldn't produce enough food back in the early 1970s. Right. Uh, Paul Ehrlich was Paul writing... Paul Ehrlich the, is still here at Stanford. Yeah, there you go. I uh, was writing that, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to die. He was envisioning a U.S. by 2000, which would just have, uh, you know, 26 million uh, inhabitants, so about a tenth of what it actually has. Another and, catastrophe movie. Yeah. Uh, that argument was not... Like my mom used to say, you know, eat your vegetables because, you know, the, the poor guys in, in Africa are starving, which, of course, is nothing like a solution. But the real solution was the Green Revolution, that we actually found a way for everyone to produce more food. And then we avoided this problem. So the idea here is, again, if you can get technology to solve this, we know we can reduce emissions dramatically. And the U.S. has actually done that. You did uh, fracking basically discovering an enormous amount of gas that has cut away a lot of the emissions from coal because gas is cheaper. Now, you didn't do this to try to cut carbon emissions, but the, uh, the, the uh, side effect is that because gas emits about half as much CO2 per energy unit, you have actually reduced your emissions more than any other country in total amounts. Yes. Because you've switched from coal to gas, about 10 percentage points. This is unprecedented anywhere in the world. It's not because you're particularly environmentally focused, but it's because the U.S. found a technology that made gas cheaper than coal. So if we could make green energy even cheaper, and that, of course, requires a lot of investment in research and development, if we could make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. The Chinese, the Indians, the U.S., Europe, everyone else. Not because they were green, but because it was cheaper. 
All right. I want to come back to that. You said a moment ago, but first, you said a moment ago that uh, Congresswoman Ocasio, Ocasio-Cortez has her heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's speaking, Al Gore, the climate alarmist, speak of a moral imperative. And it turns out Bjorn, Lom- Bjorn Lomborg, I'm, Danish does not come naturally to me. <laughs> it doesn't is, come natural to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Bjorn Lomborg takes moral matters into consideration as well. Let me uh, quote a recent article you published in Forbes. Having powered its own development through fossil fuels, rich countries now suggest poor countries go without reliable energy sources in the name of the environment. But there are one billion people in the world still without electricity access. It is immoral and rank hypocrisy to leave them in the dark. Close quote. So by defaming, in a certain sense, the current energy infrastructure and the trajectories of growth toward more electricity in the third world, Ocasio-Cortez, Al Gore, the others, are actually engaging. They're not just wrong. We can't just say, well, their hearts are in the right place. Poor poor dears, they're mistaken. They're actually saying things and pursuing an Mm. agenda which will do poor people harm. Isn't that your position? So arguing that you are going to cut carbon emissions and therefore the poor world also need to stop developing their electricity is absolutely harmful. You're right. But I think, and this may be a difference of, of U.S. political culture and where I come I'm from. Trying my, to my, 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 my sense is that most people are actually really nice people and they want to do good. And I think by engaging them and saying, look, if, if you were uh, AOC, you, know, you want to do good. Let me just explain to you why this is a problem for Bangladesh and other countries, because they actually want to have more energy. Let me also explain to you why trying to do this in the U.S. is a pretty poor use of resources. I think it's much more likely, I'm not sure she would be convinced, but at least I'm much more likely to pull her a little bit towards thinking about, oh, maybe there are smarter ways to do that, rather than saying, you're terrible and you're morally okay. wrong and all that. But, so, but, it, so but it is accurate to say that to the extent that her agenda succeeds, it's very likely to do actual harm. Yes. It's not neutral. Yes. It's likely to do harm. All right. Um, now, the Copenhagen Consensus Center does work of all kinds using this fundamental, which you have beautifully demonstrated, calm, dispassionate, rational. Um, there's also a certain conversational aspect. You want to persuade people, and it's cost-benefit analysis. So. The United Nations, and recently your work is, has focused on the United Nations, the UN has set out 160 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, under nourishment, maternal mor- mortality, water access, and so forth. And you note that in 2017, 147, $146 billion was spent toward those goals, which is only a fraction of what would be necessary to get to all 169 uh, to the state where the UN wants them by 2030. 169 goals that the UN wants us to accomplish by 2030, and Bjorn Lomborg says, nobody's spending enough money to do that. So, the Copenhagen Consensus Center engaged in a cost-benefit analysis and discovered what? So, not surprisingly, we we discovered not all goals are equally good. Uh, The UN, as you said, uh, have decided on 169 targets. The Economist lampooned that a little bit and called it the 169 commandments. 
and they say, there's a reason why Moses came down the mountain with 10 and not 169. You just can't get people to focus on 169. In some sense, what the UN did was they promised everything to everyone, everywhere, all the time, which of course makes everyone feel really good, but it doesn't help you to decide what should you do first. So what we're trying to say is, in a real world, where you can't do all good things to everyone all the time first. Let's focus on where you can do the most good. And what we found was some investments in trying to make the world a better place are just much, much more effective. So let me give you a few examples. Yes. Uh, free trade is probably the most important single thing for the world. And you're smiling, you probably like that. No, no, so, I, yes. But, but yes, I mean, f fundamentally, and I think we've forgotten that, and certainly in an era of Trump, but also of many, many other concerns, we've forgotten how much free trade can lift people out of poverty. So we estimate if we had achieved uh, the Doha round, which was the one that we were talking about trying to get through and eventually kind of gave up on, had we done that, Doha round of lowering, of, of lowering tariffs of, um, uh, uh, across uh, the world. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's not total free trade, but it's freer trade. That would, on average, if you take the World Bank's uh, dynamic models, that would, on average, have made every single person in the developing world about $1,000 richer per person per year in 2030. It would lift 146 million people out of poverty. It wouldn't fix all problems, but it would make most of the world a much better place. And, of course, the simple metaphor is, you know, look at China, who in 25 yes, yes. years lifted some 680 million people out of poverty, very much because they integrated them in the global economy. So that's one of the things. Now, there are significant costs to that because there's both people who lose out and there's a lot of special interest that you have to pay off. But even if you were to do that, we find that the benefit-cost ratio, so the bang for your buck, would be in the thousands. So you pay a dollar to special interest and you do about $2,000 of social good for the world. That's a great that's a investment. Deal. And we go on with that list. There are lots right. of other things. You know, you can save a million kids from immunization. One of the things that in Washington you're talking about right now with the uh, measles epidemic, right? For a million kids, we could save their lives every year for about a billion dollars in immunization. That was one of the things that Bill Gates said in Davos. It's one of his best investments ever. Of the 148 billion that was spent toward the 169 goals in 2017, 20% was spent toward climate change. Yes. Good idea? No. All right. Um, the Copenhagen Consensus Center. You know, even English is proving difficult for me today. That's, a, that's quite a little log jam of consonants there. Copenhagen Consensus Center. Got it. The Copenhagen Consensus Center also has begun doing work for governments. You've done work in India. You've done work in Bangladesh. You've also done work in Haiti. We spoke a little bit about this before the cameras started to roll. Would you briefly explain what you accomplished in Haiti and why you only accomplished what you did accomplish? Yeah. You know what I mean. So I'm so, going someplace with this. So, if, if, so uh, the, the issue is when you do this for the world, as mm -hmm. we've done with the SDGs, you basically say, this is what should be the priorities for the world. And everybody says, oh, that's very interesting, but it's not relevant for my country. It's probably relevant for Indians, or the Indians will say, oh, for the Chinese right. or for the uh, South Americans or whatever. So it's always somebody else's problem. And that's why we want to focus on individual nations. And so when we go to Haiti, very clearly Haiti has a lot of challenges. 
and they only have a limited amount of money. We were actually uh, asked to do this by the Canadians, so the Canadian USAID, they don't like to be called that, so it's the uh, Global Affairs Canada. They've spent about a billion dollars in Haiti since the earthquake. And they say pretty honestly, we can't tell the difference. So they wanted to say, is there a better way to help Haiti? Right. So we went in, talked with everyone in Haiti, asked them to come up with what are the best solutions for Haiti? Mm -hmm. So not problems, we, don't, we know there's lots of problems. What are the smart solutions for Haiti? They came up with about 800 proposals. Uh, so we couldn't do analysis on all of them. We asked them to sort of rank order and figure out what are the very best ones. And we ended up with about 70 good proposals for Haiti. Then we had economists, both from Haiti and from abroad, do cost-benefit analysis on each one of these 70 proposals. And what you basically then get is a menu of choices for Haiti, saying this is the best, this is the second best, this is the third best, and so on. It basically tells you for every dollar you put in, right. or gourd as it is in, in Haiti, how much do you do of good? And obviously, if you can do a lot of good for every dollar, you should do that before you, uh, proposals where you can only do a little good. So one of the things we found was, and everybody in Haiti agrees with this, that you should reform the electricity sector. Haiti has terribly little electricity. If you see, they, they're, they're on the same island together with the Dominican Republic. Yes. And I saw their, uh, their electricity use, you know, you see this graph, the x-axis out this way, and here's uh, electricity use and it goes up. And I couldn't see Haiti. And, and that was because that was what I thought was the x-axis. Basically, they don't get any electricity, yet it cost them 10% of their government revenue to produce virtually no electricity. Clearly, that's a terrible idea. We found, through a fairly complicated model that actually got a, an award by itself, uh, that you can show that if you spend a dollar on helping them reform their electricity sector, you could do $22 of social good. Okay, now to get, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna jump a little bit here. You presented them with an array of wonderful ideas and you got one, one idea through. through, which is enriching the flour with vitamins of some kind. Yes. To, to, so folic acid for, for and, children and or for every, no, the entire population. The, the beauty of, of enriching flour, and just like we do with salt here, is that everybody ends up taking it. Now, it. wheat flour, not everybody eats it, about 40% does, but it's only three mils, so it's very easy to do, and you will help avoid about 150 deaths every year, and you'll make a quarter of a million people not anemic. So you got one through, yes. and it sounds like a splendid one to have gotten through, congratulations, but what happened to all the others? Unfortunately, Haiti is a very complicated place, and there's basically gridlock in, in Haiti. Okay. Uh, the president is all alone and not listening. And, and that leads to this question. In your heart of hearts, Haiti is a democracy, at least a democracy of sorts. The president is popularly elected. He, all right. It's a democracy of a kind. Do you get impatient with politics? Do you get impatient <laughs> with democracy? Would the world not be better off? Do you not sometimes in that twilight moment before you fall asleep think to yourself, if only, and the if only would be, if splendid, calm, dispassionate, I can't think of a better word, although it's not the right word, but technocrats ran the world, wouldn't we all be better off? Aren't you stuck? with some terrible, ineradicable tension between your approach and democracy. Hmm. No, and, and I, I see where you, what you're getting at, and obviously I think what we're doing is immensely smart, but there's a lot of people out there 
AOC is one of them. She's probably also very smart and a lot of other people. And the point of democracy is that we actually have this conversation and make sure that we walk everyone through it. And so it's not just you know, me or you or a few other people who say, yeah, that's the right way to go, but we actually get everybody on board. And, and so I think what we're trying to do is we give the menu, if you will, of all the smart choices you can. Now, if you go into a restaurant, it's wonderful to know how much you're going to pay and how much you're going to get. And you'd feel terrible, which is the usual menu, where you have no idea what you're buying. So at least we offer that conversation. But you know, we would also be the kind of guys who say, you know what? The spinach is cheap and it's really good for you, so you should just eat it. But you know, if you don't like spinach, it'd be really terrible if I was the guy who'd tell you, nope, that's all you get because it's really cheap and really good. So what we do is we help push smart ideas forward. We like to say we give tailwind to the good ideas and headwind to the bad ones. It still means it's a democracy. There's going to be a lot of bad decisions in there, but hopefully slightly fewer. And that, I think, is really what the, you know, the testament of, of smart technocratic evidence is, that you help us do a little better. But you know, I'm happy that there's democracy because I think we've found a lot of other places where having no democracy ends up in a bad way. That was, I have to grade that answer A+. Plus. I, I, did, I didn't think... <laughs> I didn't know I was okay. getting a grade card, but thanks. No, I'm, well, <laughs> I have my own analysis going on here, Bjorn. That's good. Last few questions here. You published The Skeptical Environmentalist, which was your roundhouse attack on climate alarmists in 2001. That means for the, the, that for the last 17 years, you have been getting attacked by the left. And I went on Google just yesterday to check that it's still true, and it is still true. You're getting walloped from, always from the left. What keeps you at it? Again, I think it's the same answer. Look, if, if nobody stands up for reason and smart arguments, we are going to end up in a worse place. But again, remember, what I did with skeptical environmentalists was not just criticize global warming. It was basically criticizing that we get our priorities wrong. And just to give you a, a quick sense of this, that sort of gets away from this climate madness that everybody's sort of in. It's very hard to get a real and straight conversation in global warming. Look at what we do with air and water pollution. Air pollution is by far the worst pollutant in the US. It kills almost 200,000 people every year. It is, if you do the EPA cost-benefit analysis, it's about 95% of benefits from EPA regulation that comes from air pollution. Yet, you spend more money on water pollution, which kills virtually 0%, not wa drinking water, but clean uh, rivers. Now, in a perfect world, I would want both. I like the fact that I can uh, you know, swim in a river right, yeah. instead of having it catch fire. But there's something wrong about the fact that we don't focus on the fact that there's still almost 200,000 Americans die every year because of air pollution. Why is that not our top priority? Because it's boring, and then we're back to the start of that conversation. We focus on the things that are easy to watch on CNN and you know, on the news shows, but we should be talking a lot more on where can we do the most good. So in some sense, I totally take that a lot of people criticize me, but I think it's important that we have the discussion where can we do the most good, both on the environment, that's on air pollution, and on the world, and that's on boring things like tuberculosis and contraception, free trade, and a number of other things. This is what I can't quite figure out. 17 years of getting whacked around by the left, <laughs> and really, you're not a fighter. You don't, you don't really glory in the fight. You want conversations. You're, 
This and, is, and, and that's because I, I my sense I'm is... I'm looking for scar tissue in you, Bjorn, and I see none at all. Well, well but when I meet most of these people, uh, and, and honestly, I think that's true both on the right and the left, most people actually want to do good. All right. They have clear senses of, you know, they, 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 and this is possibly more true in the U.S. than elsewhere, you have sort of trick of questions and then, you know, people just go in attack mode and this is the right way and this is the wrong way. But it's probably right to, you know, take a step back and say, hey, let's just cool off. See what we can actually agree on. And I think cost-benefit analysis is a useful tool. It's not the only thing, but it's a useful tool to have smarter conversation. To return to a point that you made a moment ago, these are the best figures I was able to find. If you, can, if you care to correct them, go right ahead. But I think they're generally, directionally correct. Since 2005, the United States has reduced its annual greenhouse gas emissions by 760 million metric tons, which is as much as all the nations of the European Union put together. That is to say, in the European Union, all those nations have a larger population than we. Why? Because as you correctly pointed out, free markets lead to technological innovation, which produced natural gas, which contributes less to greenhouse per unit of energy produced. We've been shifting to natural gas, so forth. You just laid that out beautifully. Now, I quote, I quote Bjorn Lomborg, just writing just a couple of weeks ago, quote, the United States has little or no federal climate policy, which is inexcusable, quote. Why is that inexcusable? We know what kinds of people you get if you set up climate policy. You mm. get people who don't prioritize. You get people who become essentially political and produce events that get aired on CNN and make bad choices. The United States is doing fine, more than fine, as you yourself just said. Yep. So what's inexcusable about that? So. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the U.S. has reduced emissions more than the European Union, and you've gotten rich off of it, unlike the European Union, who's uh, burning up money to achieve those carbon cuts. Wonderful. Congratulations. But also remember, this is a little bit of a fluke because you did not do fracking because it was going to cut carbon emissions. You might have. Let me just. Let me just. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, suggest to you an alternative uh, 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 scenario where somebody had discovered an incredibly effective way of getting coal out of the ground. So suddenly, coal was the most uh, cheap, cheapest uh, option, and everyone would. You know, you would have cars running on coal and everything. You could easily envision technological development going the other direction. So that's why we need to have a conversation about this is still a problem. Global warming still is a problem and something we need to tackle. I'm suggesting that the U.S. should be honest about saying we need a carbon, uh, sorry, we need climate policies, but let's have a discussion about how we do it smartly instead of this being left to either people who say we don't need to do anything or the AOCs of the world who says we need to throw everything and the kitchen sink at it. Bjorn. You want lots more resource, uh, research yes. in uh, green technologies. How do you accomplish that? So we've looked a little bit on this. Uh, so you know, the Federal, basic government spending in this case. Yes, the basic idea is that there is an underinvestment in all kinds of research and development. Fundamentally, because it's very hard to uh, uh, capture private rights for ideas that are only going to change the world twenty to forty years down the line, because patents only work for a shorter amount of time. And so we know this is true, you know, both in health research and uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, many other places. But it's especially true in energy. 
because we spend very, very little in energy and there's potentially huge benefits for mankind. So I'm arguing we should be spending a lot less than what we're spending right now on our climate promises, but spend much more smartly on investing in research and development. So that is basically, instead of buying a lot of cylinders, which is a bad idea as we found out, invest it in researchers who can then actually come up with the next technologies so more, for green energy. more federal money. In this country, it would be more federal money yes. in basic research. But why not, why not tweak patent law? Why not just change it? Why not make it easier to capture those private rights? Wouldn't that work? Beca because if you're, the, if, you're at, if you're at Exxon, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're going to exist, in, or at least you hope you're going to exist in 20 or 30 years. Your corporation, your shareholders will be around to reap the value, right? Yes. But the problem is, as I understand it, and this, a lot of economists have spent a lot, a lot of time on this. Hopeless, but well, but, it, but, it, but it's more of a theoretical argument of saying, if you invent something that then is going to lead to another invention that eventually will lead to the invention uh -huh. that will power the rest of the world uh, for the rest that of the 21st century. That is very hard to capture. That, yes. So you need a lot of the basic research. You should not be spending money on cylinder building stuff. That's right. stupid. But you should be spending money on researchers coming up with smart ideas that will eventually power the world. And the point is, that's very, very cheap. Nuclear research. Absolutely, we should do both. You, on, oh, okay. You, uh, the, oh, absolutely. No we allergic do, reaction to that phrase, nuclear. No, no, no. Nuclear. We should definitely do, uh, you know, fourth generation nuclear. Uh, they, they claim that that will be incredibly cheap and incredibly safe, and I'm looking so much forward to that. But, you know, that was what they told us about the other three generations, and I want to, you know, see that come true first. Likewise with fusion, you know, the kind of idea that potentially could power all of humanity, but it's apparently always 30 years away. So we want to actually invest in those things, but we also want to invest in better solar panels, better integration, better batteries, all these kinds of things that potentially, and, and remember, when you do this, most of this is going to fail, but that's exactly so, the nature of R&D. just one of them will come through. Push back a little bit, yeah. just a little bit. Actually, I'm not even pushing back. I just want to elucidate your thinking a little bit more on nuclear, because it's my understanding that everybody, every Every energy scientist agrees that the, the cost-benefit, the, the reward from nuclear energy per, erg of, per unit of cost is incomparably greater than solar, wind, anything else you care to. The, the intensity, the, yes. the efficiency so, of nuclear yes. energy so is you, simply incomparable. Oh, right? if, you look, if you look at space, I mean, nuclear is, you know, it uses very little space on the planet, uh, unlike solar and wind, which needs vast amounts. It has, it's much more concentrated. But in a certain sense, what we care about is the cost, so the dollars that we're going to put in. And because right. nuclear so, power plants, most of the places, if you, do, if you don't look at France, have been considered these arts of work. So you do one nuclear power plant and you build it up and you build it up from the ground and it becomes incredibly expensive. It goes over budget. Then you have a very poor okay, so investment. What you need is a lot of you know, serialization, basically. Okay, so the Chinese, I don't know whether this is still the plan, but it, a couple of years ago there was some announcement that they intended to, to build 100 nuclear plants. And your immediate reaction to that is? I, I haven't actually heard that, so that could be a good idea. But again, uh, I, I definitely think it's a great idea. For, it depends. Yeah, yes, but the, but the fundamental point is what we need to get is the next generation of technology that's both okay. much cheaper and much safer, so and this, that will help the everyone. Second, the second, I don't know the details here, but I was talking to a venture capitalist in the energy sector who said that right now there are about two dozen not publicized, but about two dozen 
nuclear startups of one kind or another that are being funded, including the Gates Foundation is, is funding some of them. And this is free market. The technology has changed dramatically. The reactors would be much, much smaller. Uh, we understand what to do with waste. And so, and your immediate reaction to that is? Wonderful. Got it. Okay. And, and again, it's important to remember there are lots of smart people out there working constantly. You know, people will come and tell me, these solar panels pay for themselves. I'm like, wonderful. You know, we want more solar panels that'll pay for themselves, or more windmills, or more nuclear power plants. The point and the challenge is not all the stuff that pays for itself. The problem is that there'll still be 90, 95% of the stuff that doesn't pay for itself unless we find the technological solution. That's the challenge. Okay, so your view would be more basic research, and a lot of that has to be funded, if not all of it, by the federal government, plus startup culture. Oh, absolutely. So let Silicon Valley rip. Absolutely, and, right. and maybe that they will be more effective. The problem, the point is we don't know that yet, and so it's a prudent investment to spend, so we're suggesting, you know, say $30 billion for the U.S. for research and development. Annually? Annually, and $100 billion across the world. Uh, so that would be a much more effective. We actually estimate that every dollar spent will avoid about $11 of climate damage. So it's a good deal. It's not one of the best things to do in the world, but it's a very good idea. All right. Last quotation from Michael Crichton. I'm very partial to this. Again, it's a, the book came out. It's a State of Fear. It's a 2009 book, but it's such a beautifully written statement. Let me just try this on you, Bjorn, to see what you do with it. There are many reasons to switch, from to switch away from fossil fuels, and we will do so in the next century without legislation, financial incentives, carbon conservation programs, or the interminable yammering of fear mongers. So far as I know, nobody had to ban horse transport in the early 20th century. Close quote. The markets. The markets are much more important than even than even than well-intentioned, even than properly prioritized government action. And Bjorn responds? So there's definitely a, a, a partial truth to this. Oh, you won't yes, sign and, off on it altogether. And, and, and sorry about this again. <laughs> no, Look, go ahead. Mar markets do a lot of things wonderfully. And that's, of course, why they have provided so many benefits for us. But because there's an externality in global warming, it's unreasonable to expect that the markets automatically will do this. They may, with fracking, it just may happen to be that the technology, which also brings a lot of wealth to a lot of people, happens to cut carbon emissions. But it was not its intent. And that's why we can't just rely on luck on this area. So we really need to have a conversation about how do we do it either with a carbon tax, which is what most economists will tell you, or through a directed investment in research and development that will basically make this inevitable. So I'm basically saying, let's try and invest in better transportation. Now, obviously, if I was making this argument in 1900, I'd be too late because Ford was already there. But if I had done it in 1850, it probably would have been a good idea because maybe we would get a Ford 10 years earlier. All right. Last question. Listen for just a moment to Han Solo, the actor Harrison Ford. And this is a video that he recorded for something called the World Government Summit, which will, will be taking place this winter in the United Arab Emirates, which I note produces three and a half million barrels of oil a day. Harrison Ford. What does living in a four degrees warmer world look like? Fresh water shortages. Higher greenhouse gas emissions, unprecedented fires, worldwide destruction. Is this the world we want? Our planet, the only home we've got, is suffering. And 
Bjorn Lomborg says, actually, I was about to say, what do you say to Harrison Ford? Forget about Harrison Ford. What do you say to all the millennials who look at this actor whom they've seen in all the Star Wars movies and say, wow, he's really with it. That's really cool. Well, first of all, you probably shouldn't take your science advice from any, uh, uh, any actor, no matter how good he is. Uh, but, but I think it's more important to say, if you notice what we saw on those, uh, on those clips, it was uh, a, uh, a, a, a turtle in oil. It was a turtle with plastic around it. It was very simple things that we do know are actual issues and that we have to a very large extent fix. So you know, oil, uh, uh, oil spill oil is dramatically down because we've done something about it. But the, the issue here is to recognize, yes, if we don't do something about climate change, the world will be worse than it otherwise would be. That was what we started out this yes. conversation yes. with, 2 to 4% worse. But we have to be careful that we don't do policies that will end up costing 5, 10, 15 percent of that GDP and only solve a slight part of this problem, which is what a lot of people are suggesting. So let's make sure we make smart policies and not policies that will actually cost more than the original ailment they were trying to prevent. That's really the conversation we need, and we can only have that with cost-benefit. Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.